1: Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
2: Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by w 3 in this episode, Matt Kelly looks at new SEC requirements around risk assessment. Karen Woody looks at opinion release 2301. Jay Rosen looks at an untowards kiss at the end of the Women's World Cup and what it means. And Jonathan Armstrong looks at a computer glitch which grounded flights in the UK.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another live edition of the award-winning Everything Compliance. We're
2: thrilled today to have the quartet of Matt Kelly, Karen Woody, Jonathan Armstrong, and Jay Rosen. I'm Tom Fox, your host. And if you have any questions for our guests, please put them in the chat function. We're going to start, as usual, across the pond with Mr. Armstrong with air traffic safety, data privacy, data protection, and perhaps a few other issues. Mr. Armstrong, what do you have for us?
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Tom. I think if you've been in Europe or been trying to fly to Europe this week, you'll know that the skies have been pretty disastrous. It seems like something like 2,000 flights have been cancelled with an issue that started at the start of the week, but seems to be still ongoing because flight crews, planes, etc., are in the wrong place or they've run out of hours. And it seems that some 300,000 people have been displaced through these issues. And it's a relatively simple problem, it seems. What apparently happened is the huge computer called the NATS computer, National Air Traffic Control, in, in the UK, received a rogue flight plan from France. It seems this is the issue. And the computer rejected it. And the French computer resubmitted it. And they had robo wars of submitting this flight plan until eventually the UK computer decided to close itself down, presumably because it thought it was under DDoS attack. And Seemingly, the systems then switch to manual. So, air traffic controllers have to get ready to get the charts out and plot planes. And inevitably, that leads to delay because they need greater safety windows. And obviously, priority was given to landing planes, which meant that takeoffs were even more impacted. Because, obviously, if you're flying over from the US, you probably need somewhere to land before you run out of fuel so a huge impact it's estimated that the cost will be somewhere north of a hundred million sterling and seemingly for some relatively small issue and I guess the other worrying aspect of course is if some hostile nation state had have thought of this way of attacking then they could have perpetuated these type of issues. Some people say, that there are, for example, people close to the Kremlin who know about flight plans and flight tracking and have demonstrated that knowledge somewhat recently. And I think it leads to a wider discussion about operational resilience, which seems to be one of the trendy terms in compliance at the moment. Obviously, a lot of governments are getting worried about the impact that, relatively small issues can have to the wider infrastructure and we've got rules coming in across the eu like dora which look at operational resilience in financial services but also look at suppliers and the uk particularly in financial services has been very active resilience. And since we discussed the Joe Sullivan case a couple of months ago, I thought it might be useful to mention another case that's in some respects similar that illustrates these points as well. The case of Carlos Abaraca. I'm not sure if people are familiar with it, but he was the former CIO of TSB, a large bank. and the And TSB split off from a wider banking group and joined a spanish banking group and in simple terms what happened is he came over from spain to oversee the the platform move from the vendor to the acquired entities platform and he was fined in the spring 116000 pounds by the uk financial regulator so why was he find. As I said, he was responsible for this platform switch and it didn't go well. And it meant that banking was affected both online and in in store. And they had issues over one weekend in 2018. It also included online banking failing as well. And effectively, the regulator decided that Abarker should have been looking at program reports throughout the whole transition phase. He looked at what the regulator called forward-looking statements of good intention or expectations rather than actual process in this IT transition. And another thing that the regulator said is that he should have put the full reports before the board, not just his edited highlights of what progress was on this transition program. He should have reviewed the testing program. And as I said, he should have been reporting to the board more regularly. The organization itself was also fined £27 million as a result of this failure as well. So fines for both Abarka and for, and for the bank. Now, obviously, this was career limiting for the individual. He was initially moved from the CIO role to the chief technology information officer role. Why is that significant? Because it's then out with some parts of the banking regulations. You don't have to, you're not subject to the same requirements depending on your job title. He'd given bullish interviews about the IT transformation even when he knew it wasn't going well. And even today on LinkedIn, he calls himself an e-transformation agent and says that he's experienced in doing these type of projects. Although he's left the UK, he returned to Spain, he's left Spain, and he's now outside the European banking sector doing some education type thing, I think, in Mexico. So it's one of those themes that we've discussed about regulators increasingly wanting to concentrate on personal liability for compliance failings. It's almost the equivalent, isn't it, of in the olden days in the UK, whenever the king or the queen wanted to make an example and bring people back into submission, he or she would chop off a few heads, stick them on poles and put them at the end of London Bridge so that everybody could see the consequences of non-compliance. And I think a lot of regulators seem to me at the moment to be in head chopping mode again. And we talked about Joe Sullivan previously, but I think a lot of regulators know that if you chop off a few heads, that has more impact on leadership often than fines do because fines are often seen as a cost of business so i just wonder if this is a trend that we're seeing and then the other trend i know that i've talked about before but just to pick up on is um oftentimes it's senior management that are causing the most problems at the moment and we've talked before about things like ceo risk and here it was the guy in charge of the project that was the biggest risk it seems to the project's success. And if you're copied into reports, if you're copied into issues like this, then you've got to deal with them. You can't just say that you're too busy, that you're dealing with other things. If somebody highlights the problem to you, you've got to deal with it. And I think there's a message there for compliance officers as well. Not only is it bad to do bad things, but it's also bad to ignore bad things that are happening particularly when somebody copies you into ma- into a memo saying that there are some problems there.
2: Matt, do you have a comment?
1: I do.
0: In fact, I have two. First, Jonathan, back to the British air traffic shutdown. I did not know that this was actually caused by a fight between British and French air computer systems. There's probably a joke in there about the Napoleonic Wars. I can't quite put my finger <laughs> on it. But I do think that this is somewhat of a cautionary tale for people to actually... Con- pause and consider artificial intelligence, because this is something Mm -hmm. that AI thinkers worry about a lot, is that if we entrust mission-critical systems to AI, not just that it might do something haywire, unexpected, but it might do something so quickly that we can't stop it. And there's been some great research to show that, yes, AI can now beat humans at chess, but What happens when one AI plays another AI and they set the time limits off? The AIs can play as fast as they want. They typically can play an entire chess game faster than one second. So think about if you were entrusting your system to AI, which is then going to engage with another system that's run by AI, they could run through to disaster faster than humans can intercept it. I know defense officials think about this all the time. They really like the idea of AI until they wonder about what if China's AI and our AI get into a fight and launch nuclear weapons before we can shut them off. And this is the same sort of concern applied on a business context. Yeah. So companies are going to have to start to think about how do we actually build in limits to whatever we are doing with our AI system. Either we program them to think slower which why bother then? Because I have a, know a whole lot of humans who think as slow as rocks, or you just build in time pauses or pauses and processes to let humans go and revisit what's going on, which I kind of wonder if that undermines the whole point of using AI in the first place. But the, there are all sorts of ways this could go very wrong with life and limb consequences. And it's just Nobody died because of uh, slow air traffic, but it gives you reason to think that we have to tread very carefully with AI.
1: I think that's a great point. And I did a big year 2000 project, obviously in the late 90s, that's the best time to do them. And, and I interviewed the team that were responsible for the interbank connection. And I think they said, I can't remember the exact, minutes. I have a feeling it was about 90 minutes before the banking system starts to collapse without manual intervention if one bank defaults, if one bank defaults. Because even back in the late 90s, so much of it was automated. If Bank A doesn't meet its obligations, then the system excludes Bank A But then bank B might not be able to make its obligations because it's owed money from bank A. So it starts to exclude bank B. And then ditto. So it goes like dominoes until, as I say, in about 90 minutes back in the 90s, you have complete system failure because no bank will take credit, if you like, from any other bank. And I suspect you're right that in the days of AI, because the transaction speed is quicker, then it might be that the, you know, fatality occurs at an earlier time. And I think the other lesson about AI is, I think there's some element here of Carlos Ibaka saying things on LinkedIn, I'm an expert in e-transformation, I'm an expert in this, I'm an expert in that. And he was possibly judged to a higher standard by the regulator because of the claims he'd made. Now, of course, AI is the other area where all of a sudden everyone's an expert and they're claiming on LinkedIn, I've been involved in AI for the last 45 years. And if something goes wrong, I think, again, regulators are going to be doing things like looking at LinkedIn profiles and saying, how come this thing went wrong when you've 45 years experience in this field? So I think we're judged by the claims that we make, not just as a corporation, but personally as well.
2: So, Jonathan, I'd like to pick up a little bit on the topic around operational resiliency and go in a different direction. On our last episode, Karen talked about a shareholder action against a corporation where the corporation had not properly reported the potential legal liability of a lawsuit. And What happens in this case if not only the operational resiliency is either overstated or the problems are not fully stated to the board and that becomes public, there may at some point be legal liability if you state you can do something and it turns out not only were there a number of problems, but there was no way you had the talent, skills, or ability to do so. We're seeing perhaps the case that Karen visited with us about last time might be something that people need to think about as well if they're going to make those reports internally and somehow those reports become part of the public record.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point as well. And I think in here, in this case, it's resolved itself because the shareholder was the one sort of primarily responsible for the failure of the IT system. It was the acquirer's system. So I think we didn't see that issue in these cases. But I think that we're definitely likely to see stuff like that in future. We've seen it even in the UK, which is more litigation averse. We've had cases over, there's a Scots bribery case, for example, where the shareholders who've lost out have a crack at the shareholder who had knowledge and failed to tell them. So I think this whole operational resilience piece will translate into shareholder litigation as well.
2: Let's move across the pond to Matt. What do you hear or see about the SEC risk assessments and compliance professionals, Matt?
0: We have this interesting statement from the chief accountant at the Securities and Exchange Commission, Paul Munter who puts out these statements from time to time, and they're always worth a compliance or audit professional's attention. Last week on a rather sleepy Friday afternoon, he published a statement about risk assessments, basically telling audit firms and companies alike that they need to do better at risk assessments. And specifically, he said there are two bad habits that are taking root here, or in fact, have already taken root. Number one, He sees too many companies start by thinking, what is material to the financial statements? And then what are the risks around those? And he says, that's backwards, basically. You have to look at a company's risk overall and then decide what may or may not be material to the financial statements. But don't focus so much on what is a risk to accurate financial reporting. His other big theme, the second one, was that it's bigger than that. You should be looking at all sorts of operational compliance or control failures and then asking, okay, are these smaller control failures that maybe are not quantitatively material or these control failures that are operational and don't really have to do with financial reporting? Are they indicative of some deeper failure in the control environment that is material and should be disclosed? And this is something that we have seen and argued about from time to time in ICFR land with internal auditors and SOX compliance people. Could you have a bunch of non material financial risks that, or non material control failures? These things are control failures, not quantitatively material, but you have enough of them that they add up to a qualitative control failure and material weakness that should be disclosed. That's what Munter is telling people to do better at figuring out. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Let's say you have several small FCPA violations and most FCPA violations are not material to the financial statements. So quantitatively, you would not need to disclose them. If you're paying $100,000 to bribe somebody in an emerging market and you're a $10 billion company, that's not material. And even if it's to win a couple of million dollars in sales, that's still not material if you're a $10 billion company. But if you have several instances of, that is a qualitatively material flaw in your control environment. You have employees who are committing bribes and you can't stop it. And that is what Munter is getting at. He didn't specifically say FCPA is an example. That's my own. But that's the broader principle here. And he is telling companies that they need to do better at that. Another example might be cybersecurity. You might have, say, an employee's falling for phishing attacks two or three times over the course of two years, leading to privacy breaches that are not material to the company, either financially or it's just a few thousand records. Maybe that's not even material against the entire amount of personal data you have, but if you have employees failing phishing tests or failing falling for cybersecurity phishing attacks several times over the course of a short period, that's a material weakness in your cybersecurity training. It stinks. It shouldn't happen like that. So that is a material weakness that should be disclosed, not quantitatively material, but it happens often enough that is a qualitative statement about your control environment. So Munter was talking an awful lot about entity level controls. Those are controls that really need direct intervention, I would argue, from either the board or senior management. How come we are not eradicating or stamping out these bribery allegations that we're seeing or these bribery reports? How come we're failing our cybersecurity? And Does our training terrible? How do we improve it? And too often, Munter says, we are not looking at it that way. We're looking at it Is it in the revenue line? Is it in the operating profit or net income lines? Is it more than 1%? No, we don't have to worry about it. It's not quantitatively material. That is backwards. So I think that has big implications for, say, compliance officers sitting down to talk with the internal audit team or the finance team about where are we seeing control failures? How come we are failing at this repeatedly? What is the root cause of these, even if they are small, immaterial errors, what are we going to do about it? What is that the root cause say about our bigger control environment? Do we need greater approval processes? Do we need better documentation? Do we need better training? Do we need better tone at the top? Do we need to replace people? Because clearly the managers are not cutting it if we see these smaller repeated failures. It was an interesting statement from Munter and it is one that cuts across multiple divisions, whether we're talking about the finance people, a lot who's running SOX compliance controls, IT security. Maybe we're could I could easily foresee that these might be failures in procurement or in the IT department generally, if you're not managing your software or your third-party oversight. Smaller failures repeatedly might lead to larger failures that really say something about how your company works. And he wants to see companies thinking about that more aggressively. He also wants to see audit firms thinking more aggressively about that. And Tom, one last point I would say is that this is somewhat similar to a another statement Munter made about nine or 10 months ago at the end of 2022, where he was calling for audit firms to do better at fraud risk assessment at their client. Again, said the same sort of thing. Don't look for, is this a small fraud or not? Look for, how did this fraud happen? And are we seeing multiple instances of small frauds, which suggests a larger problem in your internal control environment, your ethics and compliance program, the ethics of your employees generally? Munter is clearly trying to bust out our thinking about what is wrong at a company and think in more expansive terms. My next question would be, when is Corp Fin or the enforcement division going to follow up saying, you company, you flubbed this up, here's your enforcement action or please restate your 10Q. I think that's coming and uh, this is just the canary in the coal mine. Matt, is this maybe
2: just an expansion of what literally every person on this podcast has talked about for years that it all starts with a risk assessment and you have to have rigor around it. And we've moved from, you know, a biennial major risk assessment to an assessment when your risks change or a continuous risk assessment. Is he simply restating what kind of the community has talked about or is this something different?
0: I'd love to say that it all starts with the wisdom of us here on the Everything Compliance podcast. And we've spoken about it for years because it's true. I have been saying for a long time that we need to think about this. And to be fair, other regulators and even Munter himself have also been saying this for a while, that we can't go into this with blinders on that a risk only has to be material to the financial statements. And if it's not a material amount of money, like it doesn't exist or investors don't get to care about it. Investors have a funny habit of deciding for themselves what does or doesn't matter to them. And I do think that a lot of companies need to do better at governing, at govern at the governance level, thinking about the control environment and these entity level controls around what is our tone at the top? What are our hiring priorities? What about our promotion priorities? Are we promoting and hiring ethically rigorous individuals who will stick to things and root out a problem, even if it seems small? Even if a lot of people would say, eh, it doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal in the big picture. If you cut enough picture, cut enough corners, eventually the big picture looks pretty weird. So that is what a lot of businesses need to do better at. And a lot of auditors and a lot of probably other gatekeepers need to be more vigilant about this. That's what Munter is really saying. And yes, it is something that a lot of people have been talking about for a while. It's really about senior management management taking ethics and compliance seriously. And if you take ethics and compliance seriously, a lot of your smaller issues will go away or be much reduced, like these penny ante FCPA violations that you might have, or employees repeatedly falling for phishing attacks when really they should know better by now, and issues like that.
2: All right, Karen Woody, we had an opinion release. And what did you see interesting in the opinion release or what took your fancy?
4: Yeah, so we had a rare DOJ opinion procedure release occur this just in the last couple of weeks here. I think it actually the official timeline is maybe August 14th. I have to double check. I'm gonna talk fast because I'm sorry my connection has been crazy today. So I hope I don't drop off. But let's talk about this opinion procedure release. First, what is an opinion procedure release for those following along who might not be as familiar with it. It is a formal mechanism wherein a company can ask essentially the DOJ about whether certain conduct would violate the FCPA. It's not a hypothetical. They really put in their own facts about what it is they are looking for advice on or say, no harm, no foul. Would you guys bring an enforcement action based on these facts? So in some ways, there can be times where it's its own self-disclosure. And if the DOJ says, That would be very problematic in this case we have one where the doj says again it would not be these are notable because they're fairly rare this is the first one we've seen this year i believe there was one last year all told there's probably been between 20 and 30 of these in the last decades so what happened in this one this was another one interestingly with the adoption and adoption company, so an adoption services company And I say that's interesting because there have been actually two other opinion procedure reliefs. granted, being that they are very rare, there's been a number in this sort of space. And you can understand maybe why that is when you think about what adoption services companies are doing. Often they are dealing with foreign governments or certainly some sort of governmental body, licensing body, at least in a foreign country. This particular release related to an adoption services company that needed to meet with foreign governments and provide for travel for the foreign officials, to visit some families that had adopted children from their government. The reasoning behind it was that these officials wanted to ensure the success or check in on the success of the adoptions. And inherent with that plan was that the company was planning to pay for travel, lodging, everything that was going to be included in this visit, as well as certain incidentals like museum tickets and other meals, entertainment. So the type of things that usually at least catch the eyes of the regulators, which I assume is why this company wanted to ask for effectively the DOJ's blessing on it. Um, There were a couple, I think, red flags-ish in the facts that they presented in this, and that was that they didn't know which officials would be traveling. That would be at the discretion of the foreign government they again underscore that they didn't necessarily have any business we're not seeking any approval from these officials when you read through this opinion procedure release you see like this this sort of seems like a no brainer there's not much that seems overly problematic and indeed the two prior procedure releases in this industry happened in over a decade ago 2011 2012 similar similar facts allowing for foreign officials to be sponsored for trips to the United States that included airfare, lodging, and the rest. And again, this just is inherent in the foreign adoption industry. But I do think what probably prompted this company to ask, again, for DOJ's blessing is that just a few years ago, there were three women who faced an enforcement action in August 2020 who had been charged in an indictment around was an adoption scam that involved foreign children, in that case, from both Uganda and Poland. And they were bribing some of the officials abroad in part of the scam around defrauding the potential adoptive parents. And that came with it, an FCPA offense with that in that scam. You could see why maybe certain people in this industry would be a little nervous and want to make sure that this would, again, have the above board, the stamp of approval from the DOJ. But again, when you read this, it doesn't strike me as anything that seems all of that interesting to be honest when you look at these facts it's pretty straightforward yeah you guys are doing it right what's why do you need the government to wait on this but they did and we have yet another procedure release that i don't think actually moves the ball much at all but i'm I'm happy to hear your thoughts
2: matt do you have a comment or question
0: i will just say that i think a good way to put these opinion procedure releases to use is to look at them and then look at a comparable fcpa enforcement action And we just happen to have one that last week, 3M was fined $6.5 from the SEC for whisking government employees from China over to the United States in the late 2010s for business trips, except it wasn't actually a business trip. They had these secret travel itineraries of tourism. So they would fly over the Chinese government officials to ostensibly look at site visits or go to business conferences. And the government officials would promptly cut out to go to tourism for the rest of the week. So it's not that. If you are actually going to have government officials over for legit business, the DOJ rightly said, yeah, sure. Why not? That's fine. But then look at the photo negative of that, of what's a real enforcement action for something like that, and then think, okay, how would I have internal controls to prevent that and make sure they're actually doing what the government officials, what I'm saying that they're supposed to do is to go and look at site visits for adoption or chemical plants or business processes or factories or whatever. I'll stop there because we could talk about the 3M case separately if we wanted, but it's good compare and contrast.
4: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And you're right. When it's laid out the way it was in the opinion procedure release, it seems like a very clear answer. But you're right that a few of those facts get tweaked and you have, what is the 3M case or any other number of FCPA cases that yeah, end up turning on something subtle. That's one of the big criticism of FCPA enforcement is that it's inherently almost strict liability on things that sometimes don't seem like people are trying to evade any sort of internal controls or something like that. There are obviously some bad actors that are, but so I, I take the point of maybe this is best practices, recognizing that the DOJ is not going to issue an opinion procedure release every time you ask. I think that's fairly rare, but it is not a bad call. This was Kudos to the compliance program at this company for double-checking.
0: Very true.
2: And Karen, let me pick up on that last point because the rules around gift travel and entertainment, although not specified to the adoption industry, were really set in opinion two opinion releases back in 2007. Everybody knows what they are. They're very straightforward, but this industry does have perhaps a few additional twists simply because- There's going to be government, if not involvement, oversight, and you're going to have to bring them to the United States. You're going to have to get them out of their home country. That's all government services. And perhaps the inherent nature, personal nature of adoptions, lends itself to greater oversight by the adopter agency or adoptee agency from a foreign country. But I'd like to maybe suggest that it's a good example that when you do have a question, you can communicate and have a dialogue with the Department of Justice. In the export control world, you can pick up the phone and call people at the BIS and say, I'm thinking about doing this. It's a little more difficult to call a prosecutor and say, I'm thinking about doing this. But we have opinion release procedures where you can do that. You can present a set of facts, even if you and I might, or the people on this podcast might think this is really within the parameters of what we already knew from 07 opinion releases or other developed enforcement actions. If you work with the DOJ, if rather, if you do have a question and you work with them and you get a clean bill through the opinion release procedure, I would agree with your uh, thoughts that kudos to the compliance function for putting this forward because you do have to open the kimono. You do have to tell the Department of Justice what you want to do and intend to do. But if you do that and you do get a favorable opinion release, you're protected under those facts. So I think that's a useful reminder, even if we don't get it very often, that it can be a useful tool that I think far too companies avail themselves of.
4: To that point, I'll just make one last sort of coda here. And that is that there's great language in this opinion procedure release that you can tell there are attorneys writing it because it does have the caveat that given these facts, the department does not presently intend to bring an enforcement action. And similarly, this only applies to this exact company. This isn't a blanket hall pass for everyone. And something else might come to light that doesn't mean that they would have their hands tied either. There's always that.
2: Denouement noted. Mr. Rosen, the world cup unfortunately continues to visit with us today, but for an untoward reason, what have you seen around the imbroglio involving the Spanish Soccer Federation?
3: Yeah, so unfortunately, you're right, Tom, that the Spanish World Cup victory has now been covered by scandal. It seems that an unwarranted kiss cast to Paul over the Spanish team's victory at the Women's World Cup, and some are calling it a Me Too moment for both the country and the Soccer Federation. When the Spanish women's team soccer team won the World Cup last, this month, or I guess last month now, the compatriots had little time to celebrate before the behavior of the country's top soccer official prompted a controversy over misogyny and sexual assault. During the ceremony, after the team's victory, Luis Rubiales, the president of Royal Spanish Football Federation, forcibly kissed Jennifer Hermoso, a star forward on the lips, a move that Ms. Hermoso later described as, quote, an impulse-driven, sexist, out-of-place act without any consent on her part. Despite numerous calls for him to resign, Mr. Rubiales forcibly defended his conduct and insisted that the kiss was consensual. But last week, FIFA, the world's top governing body, suspended him and barred him from contacting Ms. Hermoso. On Monday, Spanish prosecutors opened a criminal investigation into Rubiales' conduct, and later that day, his own association called on him to step down immediately. So what happened exactly? During a ceremony after Spain's 1-0 victory over England in the final on August 20th, Rubiales kissed Ms. Hermoso on the lips, an act that was captured on video. Rubiales initially apologized for the kiss, but Ms. Hermoso later backtracked, In rather he backtracked, insisting in remarks on Friday that the act had been spontaneous, mutual, euphoric, and consensual. He also accused his critics of engaging in false feminism. Ms. Hermoso said she had not consented to the kiss and she had faced pressure to publicly play down Mr. Rubiali's actions. She said in a statement on Friday that, quote, no person in any work, sports, or social setting should be a victim of these types of non-consensual behaviors, close quote. So does Spanish soccer have a sexism problem? Many in Spain have lamented that the kiss has redirected a jubilant nation's attention away from the victorious team towards a controversy centered on Rubiales' conduct. And some soccer players and feminist activities have pointed to the entrenched sexism in the sport that long predates the scandal. Some Spanish commentators and government officials have called the kiss a Me Too moment for soccer, one of the country's most entrenched bastions of machismo, a sense of masculine pride and entitlement. Activists have used the slogan, I'll butcher this, say asabo, meaning it's over to call for changes. So who is Luis Rubiales and what is his effect on Spanish soccer? He's a career player from the Canary Islands, and he was raised in Motril in southern Spain. Mr. Rubiales, who's 36 years old, never became a household name as a defender in the field, but he rose through the ranks of the field, becoming the chief of the Spanish Players Association in 2010, and then head of the Federation of Spanish Soccer's Governing Body, which represents women and men in 2018. One of Rubiales' first decisions after taking charge of the organization was to dismiss men's national team coach on the eve of the 2018 World Cup. More recently, an uncle he had appointed to his staff had accused him of using soccer funds for private events, claims that Mr. Rubiales denied. In 2022, during an interview with the Spanish newspaper El País, Mr. Rubiali said that the organization had received about 70 complaints and similar actions during his tenure. So what has been the reaction in Spain and abroad? Spain's main soccer federation, the main union of professional female soccer players and leading politicians, including government officials, have denounced Rubiali's conduct and called for him to immediately resign. Members of the women's national team, along with dozens of other players, have vowed not to play for Spain if its current management continues. On Monday of this week, Spanish prosecutors said they were investigating the episode as a potential act of sexual assault, a crime punishable under Spanish law by years in prison. So the soccer federation that Mr. Rubiales leads initially backed him and issued a statement saying he did not lie. But late Monday, after a protracted emergency meeting, it reversed its course and called for him to step down, citing unacceptable behaviors. On Saturday, FIFA's world governing body said it had suspended Rubiales while it investigates the episode. FIFA also ordered both Mr. Rubiales and the Spanish Soccer Federation not to contact Ms. Hermoso. Mr. Rubiali's mother has been on a hunger strike in a church since since Monday, protesting the treatment of her son. And on Wednesday, a priest told reporters that she had gone to the hospital because of tired and anemic problems. So this is a situation that even your mom's fasting can't get you out of. But it's, it's a sad moment for the beautiful game. Anybody on the other side of the river have something to say, Jonathan?
1: Yeah, sure I have. I think you've covered you've covered the ground really well. It has been front page news ever since here. I think there's a number of lessons to learn from this. First of all, yesterday as you may have seen Serena Wiegmann, the the uh, England manager England obviously losing in that final was awarded the manager of the year and dedicated her trophy to the Spanish team, which is, I think, a real act of grace, isn't it? When you've just lost your team's first ever World Cup final to dedicate it to the opposition who beat you, which I think indicates how strongly people in, we call it football because that's its name, how how people in football, football will think about it. I also think there's a whole, that whole thing we've talked about before about CEO risk is writ evident here, isn't it? But there's also lessons for the way in which the board seemed to double down. Instead of saying there are concerns which we'll investigate, they immediately called the whistleblower, because that's what she is, a liar, and then produced a set of photographs which look odd to me, I'll just put it at that. I'm no expert in photo analysis. But with the naked eye, it looks as if this montage of photographs that were shown, which allegedly show Rubiales approaching the players, and then allegedly being lifted up for the kiss it looks like he changes shoes in that montage. If you've seen it, he looks to have white trainers on when he walks up and then he seems to have black dress shoes when he's lifted in the air. And so I just wonder if one aspect of it is if you're going to Photoshop evidence to double down and diss a whistleblower, then maybe you need to use that function where you change the shoe color to match as well it could of course be entirely innocent and and maybe a proper investigation or work out what happened but in any corporation if you had an allegation made against the chairman of the organisation or the ceo any properly run organisation wouldn't allow that individual to lead the investigation and would not allow him to give the corporation's response And I've experience of doing work with many sports associations. A lot of them have huge powers to discipline participants in that sport. And they have to behave properly. And that includes taking the concerns of players into account. And that includes following basic principles of natural justice. If an allegation is made against The guy at the top of the organization he stands aside he lets other people in the organization lead the investigation with external support in most cases to ensure impartiality and you investigate properly rather than producing what seem at first blush to be fake photographs to discredit the person who's got the concerns. It just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And I would say it's just not football.
2: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are now off to fan favorites, shout outs and rants. We're going to keep the same order. Mr. Armstrong, you want to book in what was almost a rant to your official shout out and or rant?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think I probably have had my rant. So I want to shout out to... Sergeant Graham Savile. It's a very sad case in the UK at the moment, close to where I live, where an individual in distress, it seems, we don't know the full facts yet, went and threatened, it seems, to throw himself off a railway bridge. And Sergeant Savile, selflessly went to the scene. He seems to have rescued the troubled individual but and we don't know the full facts yet but it seems that somehow sergeant savile slipped or was drawn into the uh, draft of a train and sadly lost his life saving the distressed individual so i think a shout out to sergeant savile and those like him who selflessly try and save others when they're in distress and also i know we've said it before it bears repeating if you're in a situation where you think you have nowhere to turn and no one to talk to and you're that guy on the bridge then please reach out to somebody if you can't think of anybody better to reach out to i'm sure i speak for the five of us saying Pick up the phone to us and call us. There is always somebody there who'll listen. And often it isn't as bad as you think it is. Don't get on the bridge. Ring someone. Ask for help.
0: Mr. Kelly. Yeah, I have. I suppose we'd put this in as a rant against the U.S. federal court system for an issue that we are not going to be able to avoid as a country. Cameras in the courtroom for the federal trial of one Donald J. Trump. Right now, we do not have cameras allowed in federal courts, and frankly, I think we need to change that, at least for this trial, which is probably going to be the most high profile trial in U.S. history and possibly even the most influential. The people have a right to see what this wackadoo who tried to overthrow the peaceful transfer of power in this country, what this guy is really, you'll notice he never really speaks other than to safe zones or in safe spaces with safe friends like Tucker Carlson or some other right wing crackpot. And if he is going to be on trial, which he certainly should be because the allegations against him are quite compelling, then the people in the United States really deserve to be able to see what is going on in this trial. What are witnesses saying? What is Donald Trump doing? If he is going to take the stand, which I am of two minds because I am hard pressed to see that he could refrain from taking the stand, although that strikes me as the stupidest possible thing Donald Trump could ever do. Therefore, I do suspect he will try to do it. And we all have a right to see it. And we should see it in these federal trials, never mind the fact that we are probably going to see it in the Fulton County trial in Georgia, at least, where they do allow cameras in the courtroom. I don't think It would automatically turn this trial into a circus. I am not saying every news media outlet should get their own camera. I don't even think that we should have reporters bring their personal cameras on their cell phones into the courthouse. I'm okay with not allowing that. But C-SPAN exists for a reason, to be the great unblinking eye of all of our jurisdiction or jurisprudence and political proceedings. And this is probably going to be a big, messy fusion of both, set up on camera let it stream while he does it. And I am hard-pressed to see a scenario where we could have this trial happen without that sort of visibility into it. If we all just rely on those little sketchy artist renderings and printed word summaries of it, I think the American people are going to have a really tough time with that. And we're going to have to let a camera into that courtroom.
2: Karen Woody, the bar is set high. What do you have for us?
4: I'd unmute. All right, I have, I think, pulling some of the themes from today together. I have a shout out to Greta Gerwig and to Barbie. I have to say, I finally went and saw it. I didn't have very high expectations. I wasn't sure what I was getting into. But it is, Greta Gerwig does not pull any punches about the message of this movie. And the idea that this particular film has outperformed any other summer blockbuster, past Avengers, or Harry Potter, name it is unbelievable it's still shocking to me there's a little bit of disconnect that this country of all places the majority of these people likely have seen this given some of the things in the other parts of the news but i think it's a step in the right direction so i'm thrilled i'm thrilled that it's done so well and it's actually an excellent movie so that's my shout out
2: jay rosen batting in the cleanup spot
3: That's going to be tough to top Barbie, but I'm going to talk about soccer again and not your football, but the South Orange County Compliance and Ethics Roundtable, which had its first meeting this Tuesday in Irvine. And I'd like to thank my co hosts Mary Shirley and Kurt Stitcher, and along with Christy Grant Hart, who provided some beverages and appetizers and my folks back in Boston at Affiliated Monitors. So I know you've been to some of these, I guess, happy hours, Matt, with Mary when she was in the Boston area. But it's really, it's amazing to me that in my little postage stamp part of the world in Orange County that we have people who care about ethics and compliance. And just like everybody here on the broadcast, it's great to bring the tribe together. So hopefully we will get together in Q4. And if you know anybody who's in the Irvine, Orange County area, please send them our way because we'd love to get together in person. So thanks for the airtime for that ad.
2: Okay, we have a killer asphalt truck in front of my house, so I don't know how well this is going to work. But I'm going to talk and shout out to U.S. soccer, not football, because you don't play football with your feet. But I want to shout out to Megan Rapinoe. Megan Rapinoe is her last game will be against South Africa. And I fell in love with the US women's soccer team back in the 90s with Mia Hamm, Brandi Chastain, going forward to Abby Wambach, Hope Solo, Carly Lloyd, and Megan Rapinoe continues in the tradition of great women US national team soccer players. And I don't want everyone to remember her last kick in the world cup to define her. She has been a leader on the field, but equally a leader off the field with social justice and equal pay for women. And I think that's probably about all my dogs are going to let me say. So guys, it's been a great (laughs) episode. Thank you so much. Everybody have a safe and happy labor day and we'll see what next time brings. Thanks
0: Tom. Bye.
4: Yeah.
2: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever great podcasts are listened to. I've linked to all of the topics we touched upon in this episode in the show notes. So if you'd like additional information, I would urge you to check out uh, the reports, articles, and press releases regarding the topics from today's podcast. The gang will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, so I hope you'll plan to join us again. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. The Compliance Podcast Network recently won five Communicator Awards, so I hope you will check out some of the award winning podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, including Data Driven Compliance, The Coming Conflict with China, Never the Same, How Business Changed Forever, from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the night sky to eclipses coming to Kerrville, Texas. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Have you ever wondered if you could join the Compliance Podcast Network? We had some great new additions in 2022. And if you'd like to consider that or just talk to me about what it might take for you to start a podcast, I'd love to talk to you. We're always looking for new podcasts for the Compliance Podcast Network, the only network for podcasters in the compliance space. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks when we have the full Everything Compliance Gang back again. I'd also like to shout out to my colleague Gwen Hassan. Gwen started the Hidden Traffic podcast about human trafficking, modern slavery, and issues surrounding those imbroglios that many companies find themselves in. Gwen not only won several awards in her first year as a podcaster, but she actually had the top two podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network for 2023. So congratulations, Gwen, and keep up the great work. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.